the best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon countdown. Number 34. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. LawLiberty.org asked self-identified conservative and libertarian legal scholars to send in their own list of what they considered to be the court's worst opinions. They compiled a list of the 20 cases mentioned most often, sent it back to scholars, asking them to rank uh, the worst opinion, the second worst, etc. And then they compiled a list of the, the worst 20 Supreme Court decisions. And when I saw this, I thought this was a great opportunity to talk with the dean of the Alvin Maria School of Law, John Zarnetsky. He also serves as legal advisor to the Holy See's mission to the United Nations, representing the Holy See in negotiations, and including establishing the International Criminal Court and several international treaties, including one on the rights of persons with disabilities. Dean Zarnetsky is a lay member of the Dominican Order, like myself, by the way, and a third-degree Knight of Columbus. John, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. I'm, uh, it's a real privilege to appear. Yes, this is this is a decision. I'm glad we were able to get back together. I was so frustrated when we had only one segment last time. We crammed a lot in. But I want to go back and, and actually do a little bit of review because of the— um, some of these decisions, we've talked Roe v. Wade before. Uh, I'll pass on that. Um, but let, let's go back to the, these decisions dealing with race and ethnicity to begin with. So we started talking about with the Dred Scott decision, Dred Scott v. Sanford from 1857. Uh, give us a, a quick summary of that. Uh, yes, um, that's generally considered, and in this survey from the Law and Liberty blog, it uh, uh, confirms that that's uh, the worst case in Supreme Court history. Reasonable minds can differ, but that's, it's a pretty good choice for that. <laughs> right. uh, because it was a case in 1857, so what was happening in 1857, a great deal of conflict that hadn't turned into a shooting war yet about race and slavery. And the Supreme Court actually thought uh, that it was helping to solve that issue uh, with their opinion. It had the opposite effect. That's why it's considered a part of the reason it's considered a terrible case. On the law, what it held was is pretty easy to express. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States and Dred Scott held that blacks are not citizens of the United States uh, under the Constitution and therefore had no standing. They didn't have the legal ability to sue for their freedom, which, of course, is a right of all uh, citizens of the United States. So they it it was an interesting legal strategy, a bold one, Dred Scott personally was a very brave man. Um, But uh, the Supreme Court uh, held that uh, black Americans were not citizens of the United States. Now, let's go. The civil right, uh, the civil right, I mean, the Civil War amendments, you know, really the Civil War and then the Civil War amendments basically overturned Dred Scott v. Sanford. But let's, let's jump to 1896. With the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, this is uh, dealing with what happened uh, 
after the Civil War and during the era of Reconstruction in the South. So tell us about Plessy. Yes, uh, very quickly. And you have to forgive me, Al, I'm a law professor, so I'll try to, <laughs> to, to, to be quick instead of pedantic and long-winded. But uh, one of the Civil War amendments that you reference quite rightly is the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has a number of clauses in it. In fact, if you look at these 20 cases, I would say the majority of them have something to do with the 14th Amendment. When I studied constitutional law, it's no different now. Uh, The constitutional law course was probably two-thirds about the 14th Amendment. Wow. Um, So Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, in the, you know, not too long after the Civil War, the question was presented that under the 14th Amendment, uh, everyone is entitled uh, to uh, equal protection under the laws. And the 14th Amendment, very importantly, applies to states. So it was a revolution in our law, in our Constitution, to have an amendment, a federal constitutional amendment, that prescribes what the liberties are against state law. Mm -hmm. Previously, the Fifth Amendment, the Constitution, the other other amendments applied to the federal government. Now, in the wake of the Civil War, we have these amendments that say what states cannot do. And so the 14th Amendment says all, uh, uh, all people are entitled to equal protection of the law. And the question in the case was, uh, many states in the wake of the Civil War and Reconstruction uh, were maintaining separate school districts and, frankly, all kinds of other facilities mm-hmm. um, under the theory that, yes, uh, Black Americans and white Americans are both entitled to equal protection of the law, but as long as the water fountain set aside for black people provided water, we could have a separate water fountain. We could have a separate school for Mm -hmm. African Americans than from white Americans, as long as the the schools or the water fountains, etc., were essentially equal. Now, the truth is, one of the reasons this is a horrible decision <laughs> is they were not equal. <laughs> right, that was right. the whole point. Uh, but the court turned a blind eye to a, to a large extent, in fact, completely to that simple fact. And so that that's a black mark, I think, on the on the court. It, the, the case fails because these were not equal facilities. Yeah. But in any event, they took they took for granted that schools, and that was um, uh, the case here, were equal. The black schools and the white schools, the segregated schools were equal. And the court held that because they were equal, the 14th Amendment requirement of equal protection was met. In other words, the court blessed segregation. Yeah, yeah. And this this case is also known for a great uh, dissent, often lone dissenters, and and for your audience, I would cite uh, the great Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, Sometimes that lone dissenter who is ridiculed in his time uh, is vindicated in history. And uh, a justice named John Marshall Harlan wrote a dissent that is still famous for the for the very simple statement, our Constitution is colorblind. <laughs> and so when we maintain facilities that are different based on color, that is immediately suspect. Yeah, 
It took, uh, what, 58 years for this decision to be overturned? If, if Brown versus Board of Education is the decision that overturned, that's about 58 years, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. That's correct. Wow. Um, and you're, you're a little... Uh, I was a chemistry major, and my math used to be good, but you're a little quicker than I am. But yes, <laughs> approximately 58 years now. It took a long time um, for that decision to be overturned, and uh, Brown is not on this list. In fact, it would be on the list of the best decisions, probably. Yeah. But one thing to remember about Brown, a uh, very uh, bold decision of the Supreme Court whenever they just uh, overturn completely a previous case. They usually do that bit by bit. Mm -hmm. So they did that in Brown. But even then, uh, uh, states and governments did not immediately comply with Brown. Right. That took a, a number of years before there was widespread compliance in some parts of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me jump to an, another decision here, which has to do with ethnicity, and that's the Korematsu versus United yeah. States decision. This is, uh, I think it's pretty well known. I mean, uh, the, 10 weeks after the U.S. entered World War II, President Roosevelt signed this executive order, uh, 9066, and it authorized the Secretary of War in the armed forces to remove people of Japanese ancestry from what they designated as military areas and surrounding communities. These were off-limits to Japanese aliens and Japanese-American citizens. This opened the door to relocation of more than 120,000 Japanese. It, it's hard to imagine that today, but it wasn't that long ago. No, it, it wasn't that long ago, and um, I certainly agree with this uh, decision being on the list. So what I'm about to say should not be taken as my support for the decision, sure. quite the opposite. Um, but one must also, uh, I think, I forget who said it, Al, but somebody said, you know, the Supreme Court justices do read the newspapers. <laughs> uh, it's, and uh, I, I assume that's true. Uh, it, you have to remember what was going on. It was a first attack on the United States uh, sure. homeland. And so people were scared. Uh, on the other hand, we have this branch of government, nine justices in a court that is has plenary power. I mean, they're in charge of what they do. There is nothing, and they have life tenure, and their salaries can't be cut. Mm -hmm. So it, we have given them all the protection they need to do what is correct under our Constitution. So having said that, you know, it was a difficult time, of course, and they're American citizens, they're concerned but on the other hand, uh, this makes the list because it, it is an incorrect interpretation of our Constitution. Essentially, the court held that national security uh, trumps even American citizens' right to liberty. Yeah. And, uh, and that did not require any individualized showing against the Japanese Americans that were interned under uh, this uh, executive order. Uh, that really is a, a, a black mark on our Constitution mm -hmm. uh, to say that without particularized um, showing of, you know, 
crimes or right. being a threat to national security that we're going to intern an entire uh, race or much of uh, people based on their race um, because of national security concerns. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, this is, uh, these decisions are, are really interesting because uh, it's I generally try to assume goodwill on the part of all the participants. And in this case, they decided that military necessity was the real issue at hand, not racial discrimination. Right. I, you know, and you say to yourself, well, how would I have decided that? Uh, you know, we're just, we, we, we've, just, we've been attacked by Japan. I, I'd like to think uh, I would have decided on behalf of, uh, of uh, Fred Korematsu. And you sometimes I'll wonder. I'll tell you a story when we come okay. back about one of the justices that's interesting on that case. Very good. My guest, John Zarnetsky, Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law. We're looking over the worst Supreme Court decisions in our history. The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon. Countdown. Number 34. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is the Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law, John Zarnetsky. We've been talking over the, a list of the 20 worst Supreme Court decisions. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the uh, Korematsu decision, which was the decision <clears throat> uh, by the Supreme Court that uh, approved the, um, uh, you put the, the rounding up of Japanese citizens, uh, allowing ultimately 120,000 of them uh, to be taken from their homes and put into, uh, well, what some people call concentration camps. I do not know what the conditions were there. But anyways, uh, the fact of them being displaced like this and relocated is uh, pretty traumatic. But I was saying before the break that Look, I don't. I hate it when people practice what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That somehow, from our vantage point today, we are somehow more evolved, uh, more advanced, uh, more progressive than uh, those who preceded us. And so, I'd like to think that in the case of Fred Korematsu, that I would have uh, supported him in this decision. But there are. A lot of Supreme Court justices who said, look, this is not about race. It's about military necessity. You were going to tell us a story uh, about this. Yeah, just very quickly. um, One of the justices who dissented was a man named Robert Jackson. And I think Justice Jackson grew up not far from where I did in upstate New York. But he also, I think, was the last justice, if I'm not mistaken, to have not attended law school. He uh, (laughs) studied for the bar with a lawyer like Abraham Lincoln did. But the reason I bring him up, he had written in a previous, he, he's a very prominent lawyer, and he had written in a previous decision of the Supreme Court that the U.S. Constitution is not a suicide pact, meaning if if we are interpreting on the Supreme Court a constitutional right to the point that it would actually endanger the society, yeah. we're doing something wrong. Right yeah. Now, you would have thought that Justice Jackson would be in the majority in the later Korematsu case, where 
the justices knew full well that rounding up American citizens and putting them in internment camps violates our liberty under the Constitution. The question is whether it's outweighed by the national security, which also society has a right to that. So Jackson, uh, as you just sort of alluded to, Al, Jackson said, look, uh, we we defer to the military. We, we we have to defend our country. We and we judges should not interfere with that, unless. And the unless part is is really important. He points out uh, that here there's this is clearly unconstitutional. If without the national security aspect, and it's a difficult decision. But Jackson, in his dissent, said he would have uh, overturned this order because something of this gravity, he says, if I get the quote right, I'm going by memory, is like a loaded gun just sitting there. And maybe it's the right thing to do now. But that gun, somebody's going to pick it up and it's going to go off metaphorically. In other words, we permit this type of egregious violation. This war will pass. But what effects that will have in the future uh, in legal proceedings, we can't predict. And he was not willing to go that far. I think he's an interesting case. He, he, that's the Jackson of the Nuremberg trials? Yes. Okay. He, I, yeah. I should have mentioned that. He was the, I said he was a prominent lawyer, more than merely prominent. He was the, the lead prosecutor at, at Nuremberg. Yeah. Uh, and that before uh, uh, he went on the court. Yeah. So. Let's go to a, a decision that was a, a mess. Uh, Regents of the University of California versus Baki. Um, this involved a dispute whether preferential treatment for minorities reduced educational opportunities for whites um, without violating the Constitution. Uh, set it up for us. Yes, Uh Really interesting case. And, you know, one of the great things about going to law school, Al, it's it's advanced civics. It, it really is. Yes, yeah, I, that's right. I, I thought I knew what, how the world worked and why it looked <laughs> the way it did before. But law school really was an education for me. And Baki is just one of many examples of that. Baki is the case from which we uh, get the 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 word diversity and it's a, think of how often we hear the word diversity in 2023 yeah. uh well that comes directly from a concurring opinion by justice powell in the baki case so i forget what mr baki's first name it may allen. Be allen it was baki, allen but mr baki well you know first year of law school was a long time ago but some things you don't forget <laughs> so Alan Bakke had applied uh, to uh, medical school, I believe it was, in the University of California, and he was turned down. And uh, as I remember, he was able to present evidence that less qualified applicants were admitted. And so he claimed uh, that that was a a violation of um, uh, his rights of equal protection, due process of law, etc., Uh, that he was, in other words, being discriminated against based on race. And the Supreme Court in that case, they did one thing that is very good and then one thing that has led to to continuing social controversy. Mm -hmm. Um, They said they absolutely uh, outlawed or affirmed that quotas in state law based on race uh, violate our Constitution. Okay. So the, the University of California could not say 
uh, in their admission standards that we're going to have X people of such race in being admitted, no matter what, into their med school. But in a concurring opinion that, because of the complexity of Supreme Court opinions, sort of became controlling precedent, uh, Justice Powell uh, wrote that uh, it is a legitimate interest of California, and therefore the University of California, to take into consideration diversity, Mm -hmm. that uh, ensuring that there's a diverse class in a medical school or a law school is good for everyone in that class to be exposed to different people um, and and to have different viewpoints, etc. And slowly, and so that was, um, I don't think that opinion received a majority of votes, but because it was the controlling vote, you know, it was yeah, the one yeah. vote that put them over the top. That was a very important opinion by Justice Powell. And that idea of diversity, just as we've gone forward 40, 50 years uh, since then, uh, that idea of diversity has, has really seized, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, institutions of higher learning yeah. in their admissions process. You may not have a quota. I've been on admissions committees of, of law schools, and I can tell you, even the most fervent uh, believers in uh, what's now called DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion yeah. uh, mm-hmm. they don't they don't say we must have this quota because that's unconstitutional. Um, but the, the diversity idea, as some people would say, as a thinly veiled quota, others would say, no, we're just doing what Justice Powell said. Um, because of that opinion, the, the questions over race and the, the uh, role of race in admissions and other types of government decision-making has not gone away. In fact, I would say it's burgeoned yeah. uh, since this case. In the, I noticed in, in preparing for conversation today that th- there is actually six different opinions in this case. Yes. I mean, you have nine justices and six uh, different opinions. That that should be something of a red flag, shouldn't it? That there's, this is well, not it, that easy to decide. It, it was not easy. Now, there, there's another interesting, this is sort of culture of Supreme Court point, um, that dissents were, or, or excuse me, that number of opinions is, was unusual for the first 100, 150 years of the Supreme Court. In the 20th century, particularly the latter half of the 20th century, we have a multiplication of opinions. Mm. And that kind of fragmenting of the court, um, it, it, people would argue, and I, I'm sympathetic to this, uh, uh, hurts the court's legitimacy. Uh, so, for example, when the court was considering Brown versus Board of Education, they, they were far from unified, according to reports. It's mm-hmm. hard to know for sure. But the chief justice at the time, uh, Earl Warren, uh, uh, went around and ensured that the, that case was a uh, unanimous decision. Because of the gravity of the Brown decision, right. uh, unanimity was important. Yeah. That was a wise yeah. decision, yeah. I think. And it led to the greater legitimacy of that very controversial, uh, that opinion that was going to cause discord. 
Um, a case like Baki, where there's such a divided court, it, it, people naturally say, well, what am I to make of this? Exactly. And, yeah. you know, what is the controlling rule here? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, yeah. you're exactly right to, to focus on that. Let me bring up a case that I I actually never heard of before. It's United States okay. uh, versus Caroline Products Company from 1938. Yes. Um, the United States Supreme Court upheld the federal government's power to prohibit filled milk from being shipped in interstate commerce. It doesn't sound too exciting. <laughs> Tell me about no, it. <laughs> uh, not exciting at all. And again, I'm going uh, by memory, but uh, law school has a way of imprinting things on your memory forever. <laughs> Caroline Products uh, is remembered, a uh, very important case for, I think it's footnote four, but don't, you, you sure. constitutional mavens out there, don't call Al if I've got the number <laughs> wrong. Uh, but there's a footnote in the case that has a very, very important effect that we still see today. In fact, it's, it's, this is bubbling up in news coverage of the Supreme Court, as it has over the decades since the case. And that is, uh, Caroline Products established the idea of deference to legislative decisions. So think of yourself as a judge. And a a plaintiff brings a case and says, my constitutional rights are violated by this statute that this state just passed. Mm -hmm. Who do you defer to? How do you make that decision? Do you defer to the legislature? Do you say the Constitution? In any event, um, I can explain it a little bit. Sure, we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. Very good. Yeah. Thank you, John. Great. I'm talking with the dean of Havingmere School of Law, John Zarnetsky. We're looking over... 20 worst decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Al Cresta. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 34. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is the Dean of the Ave Maria School of Law, John Zarnetsky. We've been taking a look at a list of the worst Supreme Court decisions in our history, and we were talking about the case of United States uh, versus Caroline Products Company, and um, known for its uh, footnote four. And we were just uh, getting towards the end of that. And John, I wanted you to finish that out, the point that you were making. Sure. Yeah, just very quickly, Al. Um, it established, and it, you know, it, it, it's part of the context of the progressive era, and uh, it established the idea that judges should give great deference uh, to the decisions of legislatures. So um, the, 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 the rule that came from it that the lawyers in the audience will well recognize from studying for the bar is that as long as a statute has a rational basis, as long as we can articulate some rational reason, and that's not a very high standard right. for the legislator having passed the, the statute, then, then we're going to let the legislation stand. Hmm. Uh, that's a set, so it's a very now the the courts developed stricter standards in cases where you know uh, race was involved and other things like that but for the most part it represents strong deference to legislatures okay uh, but generally we like that don't we 
Well, generally we like that. Um, but what happens if a legislature passes something, these were the early cases, that conflicts with my liberty of contract, sure. um, which is also a, a liberty. It's actually protected in, yeah. in the Constitution. Yeah. We're, we're um, going to jump well, over the Lochner decision, yeah. which would be well yes. interesting to talk about uh, sometime in the future. But I did want to make sure we got to the church-state decisions, religious liberty yes. decisions, and try to make some sense of them. Um, Everson versus Board of Education, uh, this is the landmark decision that applied the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to state law. Um, so this was, case was brought by a New Jersey taxpayer against a tax-funded school district that provided reimbursement to parents of both public and private schooled people taking the public transportation system to school. Um, the taxpayer contended that that reimbursement given for children attending private religious schools violated the constitutional prohibition against state support of religion and violated the due process clause. Um, and that, so that this was decided that religious schools, in a certain sense, couldn't be considered as prof- uh, providing for the common good. Uh, the way that's how I would read this. Uh, in what sense are religious schools, um, you know, uh, not serving the common good here? But that was the argument. Uh, well, uh, yes, in, in a very real sense, that's the practical effect of the decision. Um, just two quick little background yeah, things please. about the case. Um, the 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 case. And I hesitate to say this because, like you, I, I always ascribe goodwill to people. Yeah. But uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that I believe this decision, I hope I'm right about this, was the majority opinion was written by Justice Hugo Black. Yeah, that's right. Who was, uh, I believe he was from Alabama. He is revered <laughs> in law schools because he was an absolutist on freedom of speech. And he, he really was. And But... There's also some shameful aspects to Justice Black's right. background. He he was a member of the KKK yep. uh, when he was, a, I think he was a senator from Alabama. And um, he supposedly, uh, according to some biographers, had a great deal of animus against Catholics. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, in, uh, the question is, to what extent, if any, and I, I don't know, right. uh, were Justice Black's freedom of religion cases animated in part by animus. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. We'll never know. Yeah. But uh, the certainly, the, of, certainly the Klan, uh, during the time that he would have been a member, the Klan was explicitly anti-Catholic. So, Explicitly. Yeah. And yeah. I hesitated because I, I can't remember if this was something Justice Black said, but a number of those people joined the Klan uh, because of their anti-Catholic sentiments more than any other yeah. anti-group. But, okay, having said that, another important thing is, before the 14th Amendment uh, made uh, certain liberties enforceable against the states, states had established religions. That's Uh, right, yes. So, so, you know, again, this is part of the revolution in our constitutional history that most citizens don't know about. I I didn't know. But uh, so here we have the Supreme Court saying, that the First Amendment prohibition on the federal government 
establishing a religion, a national religion, that it applies to the states. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, that's part of a larger topic for another time. So this doc, um, this is the doctrine of incorporation. This is the first time it's applied yes. to the uh, the establishment clause of the First Amendment? Well, I'll, I'll be honest, Al. I don't remember if it's the first time. Okay. You'll have to forgive me on sure. that one. No, but it, it certainly is a decision, at a minimum, interpreting what the Establishment Clause means yeah. at the state level. Yeah. Yeah. And here, here, is, here is where uh, that phrase, wall of separation, which we hear in whenever we're talking about establishment, here's where that comes into our constitutional history. That, as many of your audience will know, that phrase, there must be a wall of separation between uh, the government and religion, so government can do nothing to, to favor religion in any way or to benefit religion, comes from, I believe, a letter from Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, now, to the Danbury Baptists. Mr. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I attended Mr. Jefferson's law school, so we're proud of Mr. Jefferson, but <laughs> he actually was not a framer of the Constitution, and that <laughs> phrase is not in the Constitution. Right, right. So Justice Black, for better or worse, imported from you know one of the great founders a phrase from a letter and said this is now the rule wow. there it, uh, any state law that has the effect in any way of benefiting even just a religious institution must be, uh, must fall yeah. and we're we're still seeing the effects of that today uh Engel v Vitali 1962 uh they made it unconstitutional for state officials to compose an official school prayer uh, and encourage its recitation. Uh, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And it was a pretty weak prayer. <laughs> you right. know, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. But that was considered a violation of the First Amendment. Yes, and here's the thing. That clearly had long-standing historical precedents, uh, having prayer in school. Right, right. And secondly, um, it, as you just pointed out, it was an extraordinarily anodyne prayer. It was not <laughs> sectarian in any way. It was right. not the Hail Mary, right, which, right. by the way, I think we could probably, well, anyway, I don't want to be quoted saying that, <laughs> okay. but um, it was it was specifically designed to be uh, anodyne, not taking a position so that we, the, the school district couldn't be accused of trying to establish the Catholic religion, the Episcopal religion, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. But the court in that case, seizing on the reasoning of the prior um, Everson case that we just talked about, said, wall of separation, can't have praying. And if you believe that wall, you believe that metaphor is the controlling rule, the legal rule, well, then it's it's not illogical right. to say, well, we shouldn't have any prayer. That's right. But yeah. then you've got to explain to me how we've had 100 or 150 <laughs> years of prayers in school. I mean, that, it doesn't make sense. Right, right. Let's jump to Lemon v. Kurtzman, 1971. Um, this, this, is a, this is one that established a test uh, for uh, church-state uh, decisions in the future. Set it up for me. Yes. Um, if I remember correctly, this had to do with um, reimbursing the salaries of, I think, Catholic teachers in schools uh, from, you know, taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and the court, in, this is uh, the bane of anyone that has studied for the bar exam uh, since 1971. You've had to learn the three-prong <laughs> test right. that the court. Now, that test has in the recent past been rejected by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But the, the court went through a period, a several-decade period, where they loved balancing tests uh, because they seem logical. And so the court said any, any law that has the, the effect of benefiting a religious institution, so that would include Catholic schools, must meet the following three. Let me see if I can remember them from bar study. Number one, it must have a secular purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, number two, it, it, the law can, must be shown neither to prohibit or to encourage or benefit the re, uh, religion, the promotion of religion. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, the most famous one, I think, is there must be no excessive entanglement yeah. of mm -hmm. the government in religion. And... Um, so now we have Supreme Court justices uh, who tend to be well-educated. Their, their relative wisdom is for each of us to decide for ourselves whether they're prudent. But, but well-educated, but not necessarily wiser than any of us. Uh, our constitutional rights now depend on their judgment about those three yeah. um, prongs. Yeah. And so what is excessive entanglement in religion? Is Really is reimbursing salaries for a Catholic school, is that really the government being yeah. excessively entangled right. in sectarian religion? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I might disagree with a lot of the, yeah. the justices on that. Let's go to this employment division, uh, um, uh, V. Smith. This is the Oregon decision yes. uh, that was Justice Scalia wrote, and was has <laughs> it scandalized a lot of people. Set it up for us. Yes, um, and and here I, I tread very lightly because uh, Justice Scalia, if you know anything about Ave Maria Law School, you it won't surprise you to know that the dean is a big, big fan of Justice Scalia. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there's an old phrase, even Homer nods. So even the greatest person. Uh, sometimes, I, so I respectfully express some disagreement. Anyway, what happened here was... Uh, uh, and I forget the name of the Indian tribe, forgive me, but it was in the southwest United States. Uh, there is an Indian tribe, maybe more than one, as part of their religious ceremonies, they smoke peyote. Mm -hmm. And peyote is uh, illegal to possess. I forget what class drug it is under federal law. But uh, then and now, peyote is uh, regulated to illegal to have uh, under federal law. And so the, the Indian tribe said, well, this is legitimately part of our religious service. It's like uh, uh, the, the elements of communion for a Catholic. And so we have a religious, we have a right uh, under uh, the First Amendment to practice our religion. So for us, they weren't arguing that peyote should be legalized for everybody, but for us, we should be permitted without consequence on things like employment benefits, et cetera, for using peyote, or unemployment benefits, mm -hmm. I should say. And the Supreme Court held that while people have a right to practice their religion, if a law is generally applicable to everybody, it's not singling out the Indian tribe, right. then 
the law wins in this situation. Irregardless of whether these are sincerely held religious beliefs. Yes. Yeah. And people speculate, why, why is it? I think the court is reluctant to examine religious beliefs. Yeah. But, you know, maybe they have to sometimes. Yeah. Thank you so much, John.